Okay, great. Blog Talk Radio. Greetings, I'm Ellen Rohr. At Fairbones Biz, we believe that business can be a path to peace, prosperity, and freedom. Sound good? Great. Welcome to the Bare Bones Biz Radio Show. Hey, if you just want to make more money, yeah, baby, you've come to the right place, too. On my show, I invite smart business builders to share success tips and tell their inspiring tales of challenge and triumph. So, saddle up, biz builder. The Bare Bones Biz Radio Show starts right now. Hey, it's Ellen, and welcome to the Bare Bones Biz Radio Show. I'm I'm a little um, uh, um, starstruck today because I've been a huge fan of Bo Burlingham for a long, long time. I met him once upon a time as co-author of the book, The Great Game of Business. And uh, you changed my life, Bo, and I'm so happy to have you here to visit and uh, share your 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 own triumphs and, and uh, challenges as you've grown your own businesses and so many others. Well, it's great to be here, Ellen. Uh, I'm starstruck as well, so... <laughs> That makes two of us. Yeah, well, we're going to have fun, and this is a really um, uh, uh, casual show. We've got an hour to visit, and we have a ton of people on the phone line. So I'm going to do a little housekeeping so we can get started. Bo and I are going to visit, and if you want to follow along, I've got a short list of bulleted questions that are going to help me stay on track, and you can see that handout at barebonesbiz.com and click on the Blog Talk Radio page. If that helps you stay organized, I know it helps me stay a little organized, but we're not going to be held to that um, bulleted list of things I know I want to ask Bo about. What makes the show really fun is if you call in, and the, the phone lines are absolutely packed. So if you do have a question, raise your hand, and Bo, every now and then I'll interrupt you and just say, hey, let's take a question, because that can make this uh, show a lot more fun and interesting. So Sounds great. If you're up for that, well, I'll, I'll keep an eye on that, too. So you just press 1. If you're on the phone lines, you can press 1. If, you've, um, if you're just listening in on the Internet, then great. You can uh, listen in later. We record the shows, and they're posted there at blogtalkradio.com forward slash barebonesbiz. But, you know, um, Bo, have you ever played the, the party game Six Degrees of Separation from Kevin Bacon or heard about that? Yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> Well, I think everybody is uh, connected by a lot of different um, people, and it's it's fun to s- discover some of those connections. And you know, I know you because um, I I found you in the in the books once upon a time, and then I also am a huge fan of Jack Stack, and I uh, went to his seminar at uh, S S Springfield Remanufacturing Company SRC now, I guess right. it's called. And um, just really um, blossomed under the idea of open book management. And I share business basics far and wide and try and keep the open book management movement uh, alive and well with my clients and in our own uh, business efforts. But um, do we have another degree of connection because my son, who is just the greatest kid in the world, he's 24 years old and he just got a rockin' good job with a very progressive and hip company called Able Distributors up in Chicago and they sell groovy um, heating and solar equipment and um, his first two days on the job, he went to Zingerman's for training. Oh, and Zingerman's great. Is, yeah, Zingerman's is one of the, the books that you just love so much in your book, Small Giants. And so um, we're going to talk a little bit about Zingerman's. And, you know, it's neat to see the rippling effects that uh, the stories have. So that's one of our connections. Yeah. That sounds great. 
Okay. Two, you, you, just, you just mentioned two of my favorite companies in the world. I did. Zingerman's. At, yes. And SRC. SRC. And I think that Able Distributors is going to be in one of your books at some point. Cause well, I made a note, Ellen. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll keep my eyes open. Now that they have Max Rohr on the team. But they were wise right. enough to, uh, to, to engage him. So uh, um, they're excited. In fact, I think they're going to be listening today because they're big fans as well. So as we Great. get started today, you know, James Lipton on his show, The uh, Actor Studio, always starts with a, a discussion of, of your, early, your early life. And how about if you share a little bit about your story? You know, like you were born at a very early age, a year later you were one, that kind of thing. But, the, you know, the Reader's Digest version, here you are as, as someone who, who really palpably loves business and loves the, the game of business and the, the um, you know, exploration of different businesses. How did you come to that? What were some of the pivotal moments of your life? Well, I, I, I took a very uh, circuitous route uh, to that. Um, when I was growing up, uh, I, you know, I, I grew up outside New York City and uh, really didn't know anything about business and uh, generally had sort of a negative opinion of business. Um, when I got into college, it was in the 1960s, and I got very uh, caught up in the anti-war movement. And as far as I was concerned, business was the root of all evil. Uh-huh. Um, so uh, it, it's, it's been quite a journey from there to where I am right now because you're right, I do love business. Uh, but, it, you know, I, I think that, it, you know, it sort of happened by stages. Um, I think my first real introduction, you know, I, 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 I started out as a writer, just sort of a general interest magazine writer, uh, and I wrote for a lot of publications, Esquire and uh, uh, Harper's Magazine. Uh, I, I did a column with my wife in the Boston Globe, uh, uh, I worked for a bunch of alternative newspapers. Uh, I wrote for Mother Jones magazine, so forth. You're just forth. a hippie, Bo. I love that about yeah, you. I, yeah, yeah, well, that, that, that's right. And, uh, um, you, you know, at a certain point, I, I, I was freelancing, and uh, when you freelance as a writer, it's basically feast or famine and mostly famine. And uh, I got to a certain point where, you know, I was married, I had two kids, or I had one kid actually at that time, and uh, I had to sort of get serious about getting a job. And I wound up getting recruited to Fidelity Investments uh, in Boston, which was where I was living. And I remember they, a headhunter called me up who knew about my writing uh, and said, well, Fidelity's looking for somebody. And I said, well, they don't want me. I don't know the difference between a stock and a bond. And she said, well, they, they, they don't care about that. They can teach you that. Uh, what they want is somebody who can write. So, th- so I wound up um, spending a year at Fidelity, which was a very eye-opening experience for me uh, because business was not uh, – it was a very exciting time. It was in the early 1980s. Um, Fidelity was actually going from being a small boutique investment firm to being uh, the large company that it is today. Um, And uh, I, as a writer, um, got to uh, spend time with a lot of the uh, top people in the company. uh, And 
um, they gave me a hell of an education. Uh, Peter Lynch was there at that time. I used to oh, write wow. his uh, quarterly reports. And uh, Ned Johnson, who was the CEO of various other people I wrote speeches for and that sort of thing. I mean, I went from literally not knowing anything, uh, not knowing the difference between a stock and a bond to two weeks later writing uh, speeches about the future of the financial services industry, which was... <laughs> which was very exciting at that time because that was when money market funds, Fidelity was leading the charge with that. Fidelity is a very, very entrepreneurial company. Uh, well, and that, so that was the, the, the point, too, where interest rates, I mean, I'm old enough to remember this, but interest rates were, you know, the prime was somewhere around 20% or something ridiculous at that time, too. So what an interesting time to be, you know, right there in that volatile right. uh, environment. Right, I was actually there in 1982 when the, uh, you know, the, the when the stock market bottomed out, and uh, I forget what it was, 787 the Dow or something, something something ridiculous, uh, 865. I, I forget exactly what the number was, but it was. And in you're the, the new kid going. Uh, is that bad? <laughs> well, I was I, I was asking them, and, and all of the portfolio managers, Peter Lynch and some of the others there, were saying, no, actually. We're very optimistic uh, because, in fact, the uh, everything is poised for a big takeoff. And uh, sure enough, um, that was the beginning of the great uh, boom of the uh, 1980s, and uh, you know, on into the uh, on into the 1990s. Um, so I was there for a year, and I got a call from. Um, a friend of mine who I worked with at Boston Magazine, and he'd taken a job with this new uh, little magazine in, based in Boston um, called Ink Magazine. Uh, okay. And um, he said, uh, you know, uh, Ink is looking for people uh, with uh, a background in general interest magazine writing, which I had, who knows something about business. Well, I've been at Fidelity for, at that point for about eight months, so I knew something about business. Not very much, but I knew something. And one thing led to another, and they wound up hiring me as the uh, senior editor of, uh, uh, as, as a senior editor at uh, Inc. Magazine, which was then, it was a startup, you know. It was less than four years old, um, it was growing like crazy. Uh, every two months, uh, we would get 50,000 new subscribers. I mean, those of us in the editorial department were having to scramble all the time trying to come up with enough copy to fill the pages because we had so many ad pages coming in. Um, and, you know, it was a very exciting time. But it was exciting not only because of what was happening inside the magazine, but even more because of what was going on outside of it. Because uh, that was really the, the birth of what I think of as the entrepreneurial economy. Um, you know, it's it's so hard for some people to to imagine, but back then it wasn't considered a compliment to call somebody an entrepreneur. Uh, it was actually sort of a put down. You know, that guy is a real entrepreneur, like he had gold washes up his sleeve. And uh, um, you know, the major business publications paid, you know, Wall Street Journal, Business Week, Fortune, paid absolutely no attention to entrepreneurs. And, uh, you know, the universe, there are very, very few uh, universities that uh, had any courses in entrepreneurship. 
Um, but, you know, that was beginning to change and the whole public perception of entrepreneurship was beginning to change in the early 1980s. And I like to think that Inc. had something to do with it. Frankly, Ronald Reagan had something to do with it because, you know, as a president who really embraced entrepreneurship. Um, but mainly, you know, the whole image of entrepreneurship was changing uh, because of the companies themselves and uh, they, they, you know, companies like Apple and Microsoft and, you know, Ben and Jerry's and Patagonia and Staples and Paychex, uh, all these companies that were being, you know, that were coming into public view in the 1980s, uh, most of which had been started actually in the 1970s. And I was just like very lucky to be in a situation where I was able to get to know a lot of these companies and the people who were running them when they were still pretty young. So that and and that that was really when I began to fall in love with business because I began to see uh, that these that the business you know far from being uh, uh, you know uh, and, and something that is totally uh, centered on getting as much money out of people or exploiting people which is what I thought before, that in fact, uh, in order to be an entrepreneur, you have to be an idealist. You have to be a bit of a dreamer. Um, and uh, it's, you know, entrepreneurship is a very creative endeavor. You know, as, as the founder of Inc., uh, Bernie Goldhirsch, told me, he used, to, he used to tell all of us that when we wrote for Inc. magazine, we had to um, uh, think of the people we were writing for as artists using both sides of their brains. In other words, that we weren't just writing for um, the rational uh, person, but also somebody with the soul of an artist whose means of expression happened to be business. Oh, and, that is um, lovely. Yeah. And, and it, 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 you know, that's really what I've seen uh, throughout my Career and it's really the basis for the uh, great affection I have for the people who are uh, creating businesses, not just in this country but all around the world. You know, it, it, now is Inc. Magazine one of the the touch points of your whole career from there on? Did, have you had a relationship with Inc. from then until now? Yeah, I've been at Inc. for uh, over 27 years now. Now I've had different roles. Well, I love your uh, current title. At, I love Editor-at-Large. Whatever it means, I think it's the world's best title. Well, that's right. Nobody knows quite what it means, <laughs> and nobody knows where you are or what you're doing at any point. So, uh, oh, so it, it is a great title. He's, some, he's there somewhere. I'm, I'm doing something. Uh, uh, I, 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 was, uh, I started out as, uh, as a senior editor, um, and, then, and then I, uh, I became the executive editor, uh, and there were basically three of us who ran the magazine. One was the editor-in-chief, George Yenrin. Uh The other was, uh, another one was the managing editor who sort of made sure all the trains ran on time. And her name was Sarah, it is Sarah Noble. And then I was the uh, executive editor. And I um, technically was in charge of the magazine on a month-to-month basis. But in fact, what I did was I... I sort of, um, you know, worked on things as they needed to be worked on. And I would take over a section and fix it if it was broken or, uh, you know, that sort of thing. 
And oh, I did that. So let me interrupt you a second because we've, we've got sure. a, a hand raised. And, you know, if you're just tuning in, it's Bo Burlingham. He's editor-at-large of Inc. Magazine, and he takes time off now and then when he's at large to write some fantastic books. And uh, my favorite so far is Small Giants, companies that choose to be great instead of big. And we're going to talk to Bo a little bit about that. But let me open up the phone line here, and if your phone number ends in – Four two two zero. I think I just unmuted you, turned you not into a mute. Do you, do you have a question for Bo? Yeah. Howdy. I can barely hear you. You might have to speak up a little bit. Hey. Oh, well, you know, this this technical stuff can be a little uh, tricky. I'm going to leave your phone line open for a moment, and if you can shout really loud, then you can interrupt us, but we're going to, we're going to carry on. If you've got a, a, a question for Bo, you can raise your hand by pressing 1. You have to be called in. Um, you have to be on the phone line to do that at Blog Talk Radio, or you can listen in online and just enjoy. But if you have a question and you're on the, the phone line, give it a go, and I'm sorry I can't hear you. So, Bo, we're going to carry on and see if our, our friend okay. uh, overcomes the challenges that are just inherent in this uh, radio stuff that we do on online. So sure. um, at Inc. Magazine, then you had the opportunity to explore different companies and and is this I, I, I I'm um, tell us a little bit about your relationship with um, Jack Stack well one of the companies that uh, we ran across back in the 1980s uh, I'll tell you it's an interesting story we, we, we were doing uh, back in the mid 1980s we would do a, an, uh, a survey every year of our readers um, or sort of a portion of our readers to find out what their compensation practices were and um, they would send the questionnaires back to us, and one of our um, staff members, a uh, researcher, would go through them and try and pick out ones that uh, she found uh, interesting or unusual, and we'd put together a roundtable in Boston and invite these people to come in and talk about compensation. Well, one of the questionnaires came back um, from this little company in uh, Springfield, Missouri, and uh, she read it, and she came to me, and she said, well, this is the craziest company I've ever heard of. Um, you know, they, 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 they're, they've got games. They're, they're playing games. They've got people getting rewards for the games. I said, okay, well, we better invite this guy in and see, see what's actually going on. So Jack wound up coming to Boston, and um, sitting in on the round table, and uh, it was pretty, he was, he was definitely, uh, uh, he, well, he was a piece of work. Uh, he, 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 he was definitely doing things that uh, at the time and in that context uh, seemed just, you know, unbelievable, you know, remarkable. Um, uh, very heretical. Um, heretical. You know, he was yeah. sharing numbers with people at a time when everybody was saying you must never share numbers with people. He was sharing ownership with people. Uh, you, you know, he had this, this, this thing he called the great game of business going. And we were all fascinated by it. So um, it took us a little while, uh, but 
we, we decided we wanted to write an article on him, and uh, we had actually had to have a couple of people come out and do research on it, and then I sort of took their articles and put them together. And it ran in our August, I think it was in our August 1986 issue, and it was called The Turnaround. And uh, it was about um, how uh, Springfield Remanufacturing had been born and uh, started with this horrendous debt-to-equity ratio, 89 to 1. They, you know, they raised $100,000 and then they borrowed $8.9 million. And, and didn't it and take like it, 13 people to come up with $100,000 in the first place? Yeah, it did. That's and, how I, and, I remember and, and, the story. There's a guy with yeah, like fifty dollars, and he was in. Well, they, they, they you know, they, 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 they got a chance to put up the money, and then they all had to come up with it one way or the other. And some of them tried to get out of it, but Jack made sure that they all came through with the money that they had, that they were committed to if they were going to be shareholders in this company. And uh, you know, so we. We, we ran that article, The Turnaround, and it, it ran in an August issue. And August is generally not uh, a, a, a prime issue for magazines because, you know, people are at the beach. They don't necessarily read magazines then. But we got an overwhelming response to that article. It just hit a chord with people in our audience. And, um, you know, and, and so we were very pleased with that, and, and a bunch of time went by, I guess about a year and a half, and I began to wonder, well, gee, whatever happened to that company? Because I really love that story. So I called up Jack, and I said, uh, you know, I, I, I talked to him, and I asked him what was going on, and, you know, they've been through some other horrendous uh, episode. I mean, one thing, those of you who know about Springfield remanufacturing is that there's never a dull moment there. There's always some drama happening. And uh, um, I invited him. To, we were having our Inc. 500 conference in Cleveland that year, and I invited Jack to come to it. Um, and that was really where I met him in person for the first time. Uh, and I remember when I first met him, he you know, we, we, he was doing a breakout session at the conference, and um, it was one of those sessions that happens at conferences, you know, where it starts out with like a few people, and by the time uh, the person, by the time the session ends, you know, there are lines going out into the hallway. Well, that's what happened with Jack's session. And um, he and I, uh, I invite, I went up to him afterwards and I said, you know, that was great. You know, obviously people loved it. Do you want to come have lunch with us? So he, he, he and I went to the lunch and there was a big table where a bunch of us were sitting and you know, there was a publisher actually sitting between me and Jack. The name was Harriet Rubin. And I got to talking to Jack across Harriet and I, I asked him what response he had gotten to the article that we run. He said, oh, we had a tremendous response. Uh, we had people wanting to come and visit us and see our weekly meetings and everything. So it's been a little crazy. And I said, well, you know, Jack, uh, that was really of all the articles that we've run in the time I've been at Inc. And by then I'd been there about eight years or so. I, I said, that was really my favorite article. And Harriet uh, turned to me and said, well, why don't you write the book? 
And I, I was executive editor at that point. I had a lot of other responsibilities, but you know, the more I thought about it, the more I thought this was really a great opportunity. So I um, eventually, what happened was that I um, resigned my position as executive editor, and that's when I became editor at large, um, and uh, really decided to um, throw myself into uh, learning about business and, and writing about business uh, with Jack Stack. And, and, and out of that collaboration came the, uh, the great game of business, which is really um, you know, an attempt by both of us to uh, put down on paper this incredibly effective, uh, revolutionary, um, very forward-looking um, system of management that uh, he and his colleagues at um, SRC had created. Well, you know, Bo, and, and, Bo, just to, to comment on your, your path, this is such an interesting story because it's like entrepreneurship was a cat at your door that you finally let in. You, you don't have the typical story that a lot of entrepreneurs have where, you know, they're selling lemonade at, uh, you know, five years old or they're, they're always hustling or got the paper route and all this. You really snuck into it or, or let it in finally. And as a result of, of um, this, collaboration, you actually now, you had your freelance business, but now you are an entrepreneur. Well, I don't know if I am an entrepreneur or not. I mean, For, okay, I... Okay, what, what, what makes you say that? Well, I know entrepreneurs. Okay. You know, and, and, um, and they do a lot of things. That, you know, what I do is, you know, I do, I'm in business for myself. Uh, as well as working for Inc. I mean, I you know I write books and I do a lot of speaking and that sort of thing. But um, you know, and entrepreneurs, successful, really successful entrepreneurs, um, have to be able to build organizations, and um, that requires certain qualities um, that are very. Special. I mean, I shouldn't say they have to be able. The really great entrepreneurs can build organizations. They can take an idea, they can start with absolutely nothing, and they can create something out of it that didn't exist before. Um, and that's where the sort of the artistry part of it comes in. But, you know, there's a lot of stuff that happens along the way. There are a lot of decisions you have to make. There are a lot of mistakes that you make. I mean, this actually gets into some of the stuff that I wound up writing about with Norm Brodsky in the Mac, um, are you know the qualities that allow somebody to uh, to be an entrepreneur. And some people, I, I mean, I have a talent for certain things. I mean, I think uh, I, I'm a I'm a pretty good listener. Um, I, I I love learning from uh, entrepreneurs. I love watching and sort of seeing what happens, and I love. Um, you know, communicating that to a, a wider audience. But being able to do that and being able to do that well is different from being able to build a company. Um, and, um, you know, while I'm honored when people do say, well, gee, you're an entrepreneur now, I, I, I really feel that that in some ways does a disservice to the, to the real entrepreneurs out there. Well, who you're, are, you're, um, such, you're such a, a humble and um, nice 
person. I, that just comes it's oozing across your book. You are so kind, and you are so in love with business, and you fall in love with the businesses that you study and the people who are who are engaged in, in, in the businesses as entrepreneurs and the people who work with them. This might be a good time mm-hmm. to, to bring up the concept of mojo. Let's talk about mojo. I think the word's a lot of fun. Okay. Why don't you define that for us? Well, let me, let me go back a little bit um, because, you know, when I was – getting to meet all these great companies in the 1980s, one thing I noticed was that some of them, SRC was certainly an example, but there were many others. Uh, Apple in its early days, uh, uh, the Body Shop, Ben & Jerry's, uh, for sure, Patagonia. The, 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 the best of these companies had something very special going for them. You know, it wasn't just that they were successful by all the standard measures of success in business. Um, but they had this something else. It was like this power of attraction, this kind of magnetism uh, that you could feel when you spent time in the companies or you talked to their employees, talked to their customers. And I didn't have a name for it back then. But in the course of writing Small Giants, uh, when I was really running into a lot of companies that had this quality, um, I came up with a name, and the name is Mojo. And I define Mojo as the business or the organizational equivalent of charisma. When a leader has charisma, you want to follow him or her. When a business has Mojo, you want to be associated with that business. You want to buy from it. You want to sell to it. You want to work for it. Uh, you want to wear its T-shirts and its caps. Uh, when a book gets written about it, you want to read that book. When you hear that its leaders are going to be speaking someplace or when they're going to be on, you know, bare bones biz, uh, you, you know, you, you, want to be sure, you, you want to be sure to hear them. You know, it's what you feel when you're in the presence of greatness in business. Um, and that's how I define Mojo. Oh, that's, that's goose, goose bumply, pimply. <laughs> and so those well, companies it's something, have that, it, that um, feeling about them. You know, uh, I, in fact, when I was at um, the Great Game of Business, the, the seminar, the session that I went to in Springfield, I lived just outside of Springfield, so it worked out right. great. When I moved to town, within a month of moving here, I went to the seminar, and um, wow. uh, there were a lot of guys from Harley-Davidson, and, uh, you know, there's a company with so much mojo that people – tattoo their logo on their bodies. Right. That's mojo, right? right? That's mojo for sure. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's something, it's interesting because um, when I, I find that, you know, when I talk to people about it, everybody immediately recognizes what I'm talking about. It's like we've all had experiences with companies that we know, oh, yeah, they've got that going for them. And, uh you know, the question really I had when I wrote Small Giants, since these were all companies that had that mojo, um, the, the question I had was, okay, where did it come from? You know, how did they get it? Uh, you know, how did they manage to hold on to it? And that's really what Small Giants is about. Uh, you know, some people mistakenly think that I'm saying in Small Giants, in order to have mojo, you have to be a small company. That is not what the book says. Uh, there's no place in that book where I say that. Um, what it does say is, you know, when you 
the interesting thing is that, uh, and the reason that I think small giants are, are uh, why everybody has something to learn from the small giants is that, you know, it's very easy to confuse size with greatness and getting bigger with getting better. Um, you know, when you, when you decide you're going to focus on companies that have made a deliberate decision not to get as big as possible, as fast as possible, you know, they put a very important question on the table. And that question is, what exactly does it mean for a company to be great? You know, and, you know, different people will have different answers to that question. And, and, that, and that's fine. But I think everybody benefits from asking themselves, you know, what exactly is it that we want to get out of business, out of work, and out of life? And uh, I think that's really... And, 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 and the, the small giants, um, you know, help people to think that process through because they are companies that have very much focused on, uh, you know, having mojo and on trying to be great rather than big. Well, let, let me interrupt you just a moment to remind callers, if you've called in, you can interrupt us. Raise your hand by pressing the number one on your phone pad, and uh, you can ask a question. I'll try and keep an eye on the switchboard and interrupt Bo as we progress. If we, if we can pull that off without running into technical challenges, we'll give that a go. And, and what I'd like to do next, Bo, is to talk about some of the stories and some of the companies that you highlight in, um, in Small Giants. Um, before I do, though, that concept of small is really interesting, and you talk about this in your book, that a small company, to a lot of the, the listeners on the call, we've got a lot of uh, people in our community who are one- and two-people uh, businesses. So a large company to them might be a two- or three-million-dollar company. And from your experience at Inc. Magazine, what is small business defined as a company that's less than, say, $300 million in sales? So this well, whole I... idea of small could be a relative term yeah, it's absolutely a relative term, uh, and you know I think the Small Business Administration decide, defines it as uh, companies with 500 employees or less. But uh, you know that's a totally arbitrary. Any any anything like that is 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 any definition like that is 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 very arbitrary. Um, you know. Um, and, you know, it is all very relative. I mean, I, I once remember reading an article in Business Week about, um, uh, about uh, SRC, actually, um, and Springfield Remanufacturing, and SRC was described in the article as itty-bitty SRC. Well, itty-bitty SRC was doing $100 million in sales at the time. I didn't think of that as being itty-bitty. Um, you know, the truth of the matter is that um, there are stages that companies go through. First place, the whole small business landscape is incredibly diverse. Yeah. Uh, that's one of the problems that I think in our language, I think one of the reasons that small giants has hit a chord with people is that it gives them a name for something that didn't have a name before. You know, in, in our political uh, discussions, you know, you hear people in Washington talk about small business. Well, you, you know, you, you'd think that they were talking about one type of company, but they're, you know, they're family businesses, 
There are companies like small giants that choose to be great instead of big. Uh, there are um, one-person or two-person uh, companies uh, that are, you know, uh, outsourcing a lot of things and, you know, just pro trying to provide a good service. Uh, there are family businesses. It's just, you know, most of, uh, of, of business, the world of business, um, is in companies that are not large publicly traded companies. I mean, you know, large publicly traded companies which get all the attention and all the ink, um, they constitute, you know, a tiny, tiny percentage of the total number of businesses in, in, in this country and, and in the world. And yet they get all this attention. Meanwhile, the rest of the business landscape, you know, doesn't get that kind of attention. And so there's uh, you know, but so the, the, I, I did have to deal in small giants with this issue of size. Um, and I decided that I was going to look at companies that operated on what I called human scale. And by human scale, I meant that they were still at a size where everybody could know everybody else. In other words, people who were just joining the company would meet with and have access to the senior leaders, and the senior leaders would know those people. Um, that that defined it on the upper end. On the you know, in the end, I wound up choosing 14 companies. The smallest company in the book is a two-person company in Miami, um, and the largest company was, I think at the time, uh, it's O.C. Tanner in Salt Lake City, and I think at the time they were, I don't know, they were, they were doing, I think, about $300 million in sales, and they had, you know, 1,500 employees, which certainly uh, gets to those them specifically because I wanted to see how large a company would still sort of fit into this. And they were just, you know, moving beyond the point where they could be considered small. Well, um, uh, let's, let's talk about some of these companies because the, the 14 companies are really uh, interesting and diverse. And here's another um, small degree of separation. I was born in Salt Lake City. I know O.C. Tanner. And, um, oh, okay. One of the things that they did is that they have these fantastic gardens. I mean, absolutely fantastic yeah. gardens that they're – at their uh, uh, company that provide a park environment for their employees and for passers-by in the community. And that's a really unusual thing to see a, a larger company um, commit to. In a, yeah, well, like Obert Ober, yeah, Tanner, who was the founder, was a, a really, I mean, I never met him, um, but uh, he, he died in the, I guess, in the 1990s. But it's obvious that he was a really extraordinary human being. And a great um, benefactor and somebody who loved his employees. Um, you know, people told me stories about how even when the company got up to around a thousand people, he would be able to walk through and he would sit down with somebody who was working in this or that job and be able to talk with them, ask them about their family. He knew about their family. Uh, and, you know, when I think at Christmas, um, he would stand by the door and personally hand out $100 bills to people um, as, they, as they left. Um, 
you know, so he he was he was quite a remarkable guy. Well, I think what's so interesting about these companies is this idea of measuring your success in a yardstick that includes financial performance, but isn't limited to that. And exactly. let's talk about the let's talk about the Zingerman uh, company a little bit. I heard about this company when um, Max went up there and. Uh, uh, went through their training, and he was so impressed. But as I, I read the story about them in Small Giants, this is a company that instead of the obvious route of scaling their sandwich shop into uh, you know, franchisable units, decided instead to develop unique boutique businesses all under the same basic uh, masthead. But each of these uh, stores has... Um, a different, um, uh, uh, not necessarily a clientele. The clientele may be the same, but what they offer and provide and the way they provide it is different and unique. And the, the owners had kind of like a midlife crisis during a cooler breakdown when their, when their AC broke down. And I just loved how that evolved. So the two of them spent two years getting clear on that they may not work together, they may work together, They one didn't want to do it, another one did want to do it, and they came up with this unique vision for their company. Tell me a little bit more about the Zingermans and how you got to the Zingerman story. I well, know not Zingerman, Z- Z- Zingerman's was actually how I got, how Small Giants came about. Um, because I had gone up, I, I you know, Jack uh, Stack uh, does a conference every year of, um, open book companies called The Gathering of Games. Yes, The um, Gathering. Yes, The Gathering. And uh, I, I was very involved in that in the early days in terms of doing the program for it and that sort of thing. Um, and one year I ran into somebody from Zingerman's who was attending the conference. And um, I uh, had heard about Zingerman's, but I didn't know much about them. And um, you know, one thing led to another, and the next year we had somebody from Zingerman's. We had Ari Weinswag, who's one of the founders of Zingerman's, come down. And so I got to know Zingerman's a little bit through the conference, and I became more and more curious about them. And finally I, uh, you know, convinced uh, my editor at Inc. to let me go up and do an article on them. And, uh, you know, it was the story that you just uh, recounted that, that basically I, I discovered when I went up there which was that, you know, here was a company that had started out, uh, these two guys, Paul Saginaw and Ari Wanswag, um, you know, they just wanted to create a, de- a great delicatessen. They felt that there wasn't a great delicatessen in Ann Arbor, and uh, they loved delicatessens, and so they wanted to start one. Um, and they wanted it to be a great and unique uh you know, not not a copy of other any other delicatessen, but something that was really unique. Um, and you know, in the first ten years, they they succeeded. I mean, by 1992, um, you know, they were they were really world famous. I mean, they'd been written up in uh, all kinds of magazines and newspapers, uh, in Esquire and um, New York Times and. Washington Post, Gourmet Magazine, uh, you know, Food and Wine, all the food magazines, Bon Appetit, and, and, you know, whenever anybody put together a list of the great delicatessens of the world, Zingerman's was on it. So they, they came to this crossroads, um, you know, okay, what, what do we do next? 
And because they were so successful, they had lots of different opportunities. There were a lot of people who actually wanted to start Singermans in other college towns around the country, and they could easily have franchised. But basically, our Weinswag said, Paul said, you know, maybe this is something we need to do. Maybe the, maybe we really shouldn't be doing this. And Ari said, well, you know, Paul, maybe it's the right thing to do. If you want to do it, you can go ahead and do it, but I don't want to have anything to do with it. He said, uh, you know, I got into this business in order to create something great and unique, and when you start duplicating it, it's not unique by definition, and lots of times it's, it's not any good, let alone great. Uh, he said, I don't want to spend my time flying around the country visiting mediocre Zingermans, uh, you know, to see if the coleslaw is fresh. Um, so they, they, they sat and talked and came up with this other plan, which was to build, you know, I mean, the thing that amazes me is that in 1994, they came out with this plan that was a vision of what Zingermans was going to look like 15 years in the future. I mean, I, you know, 15 months is a long time, or 15 weeks is a long time for me to imagine. Can you imagine <laughs> thinking where, what your business is going to be like 15 years from now? No, and, and, the, and the dialogue that they had to do it, they took their time crafting it, too. You right. Know, they didn't do they, it over really a weekend. Did. Yeah. No, two years. Mm-hmm. Two years meeting every week on a bench outside the deli. And, you know, the, the, the vision that they came up with was for to have this community of businesses. Uh, each of the businesses is going to be called the Zingerman's Community Businesses. It wasn't just going to be a delicatessen. It was going to be a whole bunch of food-related businesses. That was one of the criteria, criteria that um, it, it, every business was going to be somehow related to food. Uh, It was going to be located in the Ann Arbor area, and it was going to be great and unique in its own right. And by the time I went to visit them, they were, you know, in 2002, they were well over halfway, you know, to getting to their goal. I mean, today they've got a fabulous restaurant called um, uh, Zingerman's Roadhouse. Uh, They've got... Uh, a a bakery that's bigger than the delicatessen that's award-winning called Zingerman's Bakehouse. They've got a chocolate company. Uh, They've got a creamery that makes award-winning gelato and cheese. Um, They've got a coffee roastery. They've got a uh, a, a catering company. There's a mail-order business. There's a training company called Zingtrain. Uh, you know, there are all of these different businesses that they have, and they keep starting other ones. Um, and, you know, but the thing that really, that really caught my attention was this Mojo business. I didn't have that name then. But, you know, this company, which was a you know, relatively small company at that point, it was, uh, you know, doing maybe $12 million a year or something, um, they were able to attract people who you would never expect to find in a company of that size. I mean, people who'd had successful companies and sold them in order to be part of this, what was going on in Zingerman's, or who'd had great jobs in large companies who'd taken significant pay cuts in order to be part of this exciting thing that was happening up in Ann Arbor. And so I wrote an article about them, and the article 
was called the coolest small company in America, and it was the cover story of Inc.'s uh, two, January 2003 issue. And it got a big response from readers, um, and one of the people who responded to it was a publisher in New York um, who called me up and said, you know, I, I love that article that you did on Zingerman's. Uh, I wonder if there are other companies out there like, like Zingerman's. You know, at first I didn't know what he was talking about because I'd never seen any company like Zingerman. He said, no, no, I'm talking about are there other companies that have had the opportunity to get a lot bigger, a lot faster, but have chosen not to because they have other goals that they consider more important in getting as big as possible, as fast as possible. Now, I've been in Inc. for 20 years at that point, and I, I didn't know the answer. I'd seen thousands of companies, but I'd never, never thought of the question before. And I thought, boy, that's a really good question. And so that's how Small Giants came about. I, I, I did a deal with the publisher, and I, I went out to try and see if there were other companies. I had no idea what I would find. Uh, one of the first things I found, actually, was that there were a lot more of these companies than I ever imagined. and They were in every uh, area of the country and in every industry. Um, and, you know, because of that, I was able to sort of pick and choose the ones that I felt would allow me to explore this phenomenon. And the ones I chose were the 14 that I wound up with that are in the book. Well, and the yeah. word the word choose is so significant, and, and you you talk about that being such really the the linchpin word of the of the title that there are yeah. these decisions that are made by the people who are running these companies to take the the path less traveled or to prioritize right. things other than just massive growth or, or a shareholder. Um, return. Let me let me ask you right. about this fellow, and I don't I don't know how to pronounce his name, so help me out. How do you pronounce? Is it Jay Goltz? Yeah, Jay Goltz, right? Jay Goltz. Okay, he has a very um, candid tale, and he talks about kind of the um, the what is it called? Entrepreneurialism? It's like alcoholism uh, slash entre What's the word? He 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 describes himself as a recovering entrepreneurialic. Entrepreneurholic, yeah. and he, and that is something I'm sure you've seen a lot of, and certainly I have um, sure. in my career too. Is just you know, at what cost are you going to grow right. this business? And he's very candid about the effects it had on him and his life, and and his early success, and then kind of feeling a little middle-aged, abandoned by the, um, uh, you know, powers that be or the you know celebrity engine. In uh, in the uh, business world, but then he talks about the starfish, and I and I want to ask you kind of a, a two part question here, and this is this has to do with mentorship and taking someone under your wing and the idea of the starfish. So I want you to share what the significance of the starfish is, and then I want to add this to it because sometimes in an effort to be mentoring or help, you know, committed to the development of the people on your team, so often I've seen people hang on to someone who's losing for way too long and not pull the trigger, especially in small businesses. There seems to always be somebody that's a boat anchor on the team. And it's often right. disguised as, you know, well, this is someone I, I'm really committed to and I don't want to let them down, but there, there's a, right. a line here. So that's like the, the two sides of the story I'd, I'd love for you to address. Yeah. Well, the story, um, it, it's actually not original with Jay. Uh, if you Google it, you'll, you'll find that, 
Uh, yeah, I've so heard yeah, the, we'll, I've heard we'll, the we'll, story before, but he brings this up, I guess, as his inspiration. He, he, he bring, well, he, he brings it up in a business context, which I, where I think it's particularly relevant um, because it was a revelation to him uh, where he was going along, he'd been in business for a while, and he was feeling that he hadn't, you know, he'd sort of read articles about Michael Dell and say, well, how come this guy is so much more successful than me? And he really didn't give himself credit yeah, because he's doing. really quite brilliant and had you know a success on so many levels. That's right. He transformed the industry, and um, he uh, and and then one day he, he he had an experience where some people he, who he hired uh, um, were leaving and they had their going away party. One of the women Is that okay? That's better. Okay. Okay. Let's do this. I'm sorry. Oh, um, that's all right. Okay. All right. Sorry about that. No, you sound you sound much better. It's just this is a um it this this can test any headset. This. Okay. <laughs> oh, it's doing it again. I'm sorry. Maybe if you've got your handset, you could pick it up.
at, at the starfish in her hand, and she says, well, it's going to make a difference to this one, and she throws him into the ocean. And that's, that's I, I think, the lesson there is that you can have an impact, and you don't have to uh, measure your impact by uh, having, you know, it, 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 you know, people people are helped one person at a time, and 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 businesses play this role in people's lives one person at a time. And I think that's the the lesson that sort of Jay was looking at. Now you're right, there is the other side to the story, and Jay is somebody who realizes that as well, which is that employment is a two-way street, you know. And uh, it's, it's not just a question of the, of the business um, being, uh, you know, kind to its employees. The employees have a responsibility. And, and, and that respons- they have a responsibility to themselves, to the company, to the people they work with. And, and that is to pull their own weight. And if they don't do it, well, as Jack, would, Jack Stack would say, then if they're unhappy where they are, they should go and be unhappy someplace else. <laughs> or, you know, or it, it's not okay to have someone lose on your watch. I think that's the thing, too. Isn't it unethical to have someone, you know, sometimes I go to a, a company and before I even land, I can see the black cloud on, on this one fellow that everybody knows is losing. And how, how wrong is it to maintain that situation at your company? You know, because that well, guy could probably win somewhere else. Which yeah, think, uh, that's true. That's true. Although some people just insist on losing. Um, <laughs> yeah. y- y- you know, uh, Jack. Jack and I are a little, have a little difference of opinion here. Jack is extremely tolerant of people. It's unbelievable. He'll stay with people for a very, very long time. I'm more of the Jim Collins school. Uh, Jim says, uh, you know, that that the most important thing is to have the right people on the bus. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have the right people on your bus, they need to go to somebody else's bus. Um, And you need to, but but basically everything about the success of, of a business is determined by having the right people on the bus. And, 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 with a few exceptions, a lot of the great companies that I know, they have very rigorous systems for making sure that they do wind up with the right people on the bus. Oh, that's a that's a lovely place. And you know, for us to to wrap up because this this hour went so fast. It's been <laughs> so much fun to visit with you, and thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and uh, for being a guest on my show today. Well, it's my pleasure. Let me just. Uh, mention to you and to and, and to your listeners that there is uh, something called the small giants community now oh yeah uh, you can you you can find it at www.smallgiants.org um, and it's 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 a uh, it's a community where people who uh, identify with the small giants in in in, in my book uh, you know, can be in touch with each other and can learn from each other. So, you know, you may be interested in, uh, in, in, in being in touch with them. Well, I would be happy to join the community. And thank you so much for being part of ours today. It's always, I, a, I, it's always a, a, a treat to, to meet one of my heroes, and you are absolutely one. So thank you for having such a powerful, positive impact on my life and on so many others. 
Well, thank and, uh, you, Ellen. Th thank you, Ellen, and, and thanks for all that you do to, uh, you know, really spread the word here. It's uh, very you can, count, you can count on it. So thanks, and we'd love to have you on again, and thanks for taking uh, the time today. And, you know, um, if you'd like to go to Oprah.com and vote for me and my own show, I have um, thrown my hat in the ring to uh, be a part of her uh, new TV series competition to get a, a talk show. Wouldn't I just be darling on that? I'm all over it, Ellen. Okay. You're a sweetheart. Well, love, love, love okay. to you, and thanks for help expanding freedom through extraordinary business because that's what we try okay. to do. Okay, and, and good business. luck to Max. Okay, uh, to Max, you bet. I know, I know he'll be so proud. He'll be blushing right now that we were bragging on him. Hey, you know, I have okay. one more company. Uh, it, you know, as you were talking about Zingerman's, it's going to cut us off here in a second, but my – um. I have a, a nephew who works for a really cool organization in Park City, Utah, called the Bill White, Bill White Enterprises is the name of the company. And this fellow has chosen to expand to different types of restaurants, but they actually work as a whole. The bakery bakes for all the restaurants. The sommelier is the sommelier of all the restaurants. And they move into and out of different roles in the organization. It is the, I was a restaurant person growing up, and it's the most extraordinary restaurant structure I've ever experienced. So the, the, one of the restaurants is called Grappa in Park City, Utah. And if you make it out there, you will uh, be impressed by Bill White Enterprises and the organization organization that they're developing out there well they're on my list too okay yeah I, you know i know you, still, you you got to look for things to write for a, a successful magazine month after yeah, month right so uh, yeah i just i thought as we were talking about zingerman's i thought you know that's an interesting um there's a lot of parallels uh with how they've grown their businesses and um i think that might be uh something to have on your list at some point too well, you are a peach, and thank you so much for being a part of our radio show today. Well, thank you, Ellen. All right. I'll let you go. Thanks. Love, love, love. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Oh, no. We're out of time. Thanks to my uber-smart guest, and thanks for joining us. You can listen in again at blogtalkradio.com slash barebonesbiz. So down with the ball and chain of 20-hour workdays and piles of debt. Make some money. Fix and grow your own extraordinary business. And until next time, this is Ellen XOXOXO. I wish you love, peace, prosperity, and freedom.